look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Faisal. You? Good, good. You know, if you might be an executor of a will someday, don't miss this next segment. We're going to talk about what requirements are there, and there's some big concerns as well, too. Yeah, if you've got millennial children that are having a hard time launching into their <laughs> lives and careers, or they're even moving back home, find out why and how to help your kids gain their independence. Independence being the key word there. And if you plan on traveling, don't miss our last segment where we get the insider tips on how hotels review work, uh, reviews, how the reviews work actually, Mm -hmm. and how to use them to pick the best places to stay on your trip. So Dave, you know, there was a very interesting week. Uh, We, uh, I sat down with a few of our clients and I went through their portfolio and their performance and, and there's a couple things that I kind of want to mention that, that we've been doing that I think the average listener should have when they're sitting down with their advisor. Number one, it's easy to talk about performance. What's the rate of return? Right. Uh, but what does that really mean? What are you comparing your rate of return to? Oh, context, you mean? Yeah. So when someone says, I made 17% return, congratulations. It's great. Good number. But what does that 17% really mean? And so when you take into the context, you have to look at a few things. First of all, is that rate of return meeting your financial planning goals? Now, the problem is most people don't even have a financial plan. Right. So if you don't know where you're going, what is the rate of return going to do for you? Yeah, but everybody would say 17% fits into my financial planning goals. What if it's three? Well, you're saying what if you need three? What if it's 3% as the rate of return? Yeah, I know, but 17 will fit into everybody's goals, right? Sure, sure. So a big number is great. Right. But what if it's a small number? Yeah, but listen, I'm, I'm the risk guy on the team, right? So the context I want to bring to that conversation, which you and I talk about all the time, particularly with clients, is what level of risk do you take yeah, on let, let, in order to get that? You're jumping ahead of my oh, piece sorry. here. Don't steal my thunder, wanna, my okay, friend. Yeah. All right. So the get first to, one get is... Get to the thunder. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the first part of it is, so what is that, that, that rate of return? 17%, 5%, whatever the number is, what does that, num- that number mean? First of all, compare it against your plan. Are you ahead of plan? Because you could have been down 15% last year. Mm-hmm. You could be up 17% the year after. And then how does that work out? Are you on pace? So are you meeting your financial planning goals? Do you get a check mark for that or do you get an X? The right. second one is you have to compare yourself to certain types of benchmarks. Now, here in Canada, most Canadians will use the TSX. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do not have 100% of your portfolio in Canadian stocks, that's the wrong benchmark. You're not, manag- you're not uh, measuring the manager of the money fairly because you're using some proxy. And I understand the proxy, so it's good to know how you're doing against a proxy. But what you should be doing is based upon your risk tolerance, how would a portfolio be designed? If you are a medium risk or a high risk or a low risk investor, you need to have your risk assessed on what kind of a portfolio that would look like, generally speaking. And are you taking on more return than the risk profile? If that's a yes, check mark for versus your risk profile. Now you have to look at what's the volatility that you're willing to accept to get that rate of return. 
So let's go back to that 17%. Yeah. If you're taking 20 to 30% volatility, which means you could lose 20 to 30% on the downside, is that acceptable given your risk tolerance, given your plan? And, and timeline. Give, and yeah. the timeline. Yeah. That's where you measure all three pieces to say, is, am I doing the right thing? Well, you know, you know, uh, you make a really interesting point here, and uh, maybe just to add on to that conversation, we, we've got a demographic in Canada now, but in the Western developed world generally, that's gotten rich before it's gotten old, right? So you think about when somebody was 30 years old, um, you didn't have much money. You didn't put a lot of time and thinking to this. Fast forward now, you're 60, or this demographic is 60 years old. They have a lot of money. And, and what I find interesting is, an individual, the way they approach their investing versus the way an institution approaches investing. Like a pension plan. Like a pension plan. A pension plan actually starts with a risk conversation first. So they try to determine as a board and as an investment committee what level of risk they're prepared to take on. And then they model what rate of return they can expect. And you might have a range of risk and return projections, right? There's a continuum that they, that they take a look at. So when you look at risk, Dave, I think one thing that people should realize is what could cause this to to blow up. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the question. What are the issues that could happen that could really damage my portfolio, my savings, my hard-earned money? That's the question. That's what every pension plan does. And that's what so the word risk is very ambiguous. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. It depends sure. on it depends on what what you want. Like I think, you know, it depends same with the degree of pain. It's variable, right? So yeah. we, the variable of risk is not a good metric. What right. you have to understand is can you take what issues will happen to 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 really blow up your portfolio, and can you handle those those risks? And if not, how do you how do you adjust? And are they temporary or permanent? And you know, there's like you said, there's a big continuum there that, that people need to understand. But here's what I'm advocating, and I think the conversations um, that we're having right now and with clients is, it's you cannot. It's not as simple anymore because of the amount of money that these people have and what that money has to do for them. There's no, you can't recover now if you're retired. There's no new money coming in. It's, I think, important for people to educate themselves about the risk side. We all intuitively know yeah. there's a relationship between risk and return. Correct. But we never had, as our industry, and I'll fault our industry for this, we've never had the risk conversations. We're always just talking about plain return, and you're talking about short-term. And I, and I say year. this time and time again. In the absence of risk, return is the only conversation you'll have. Right. So when, when you have two people living side by side, and they're mowing the lawn right by the fence, and they talk to each other, and they say, hey, how is your portfolio doing? And the one guy says, I made 10%, and the other guy says, I made 20%. The instant reaction is, I want that portfolio. Right. What is never discussed, because right. people are no, don't know about this, is uh. how much risk are you taking to get that 20? Are you willing to give up half of your portfolio to get that 20% when I'm taking maybe 5% downside risk to get the 10 there's a big difference. People always talk about an absolute number and don't talk about the underlying risk behind mm. it. And I'm the stock guy saying this. <laughs> but I have seen point. people lost lots of money trying to chase after big returns when they can just lose less and you'll make more. Yeah, <laughs> what or, a novel or, concept. Yeah, and this, this, of course, assumes a time frame, right? So um, I also love the, the return. Con Not all return is created equally from a risk perspective, number one. And that can actually be modeled and measured and so on and so forth. The other thing is, 
it's not about a one-year return, particularly in retirement, right? In retirement, we are focused on a glide path that takes you from the day you call it quits, right, or whatever you define as retirement, to the day that you transition that wealth to the next generation. And we hope to God that that is a long period of time, yes. right? So what we can't afford to do is to take a short-term look at a short-term win or a loss. And I, and I, would, cite, I would cite that. I, I always love the, I, I hear regularly about the big wins. I never hear about the big losses, right? And you don't get one without the other. You yeah. can't hit home runs without striking out most of the time. It's just the way it is, yeah. right? That's the law of averages. It's yeah. the law of averages. And we're going to talk about this at our seminar on Tuesday, May 16th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call at 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website at morethemoneyradio.com. Okay, well, join us after the break to hear about your requirements as an executor, which might even affect who you choose as your own. You're listening to News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Um, Faisal, there's been some recent examples of um, court decisions that affect executors of wills. Um, we talk a lot about the legacy bucket, right, and organizing it properly and the responsibilities um, of what the people named in those documents have to do, right? I don't think people really <laughs> understand the responsibility of an executor. They don't. And they sometimes we think it's an honor to be chosen, right? Not an honor. It's a job. <laughs> it's and a that job actually has responsibilities, and you can be taken to task on those responsibilities Correct. if you don't understand them. Correct. So, um, you know, in light of some of these recent decisions, we thought it might be a good example to... Um, to shed some light on this, what an executor is, the roles, responsibilities, and what can happen if you don't take those roles and responsibilities seriously. And we've got a regular recurring guest of ours, Catherine Zhang, an associate at Walsh LLP, here to join us. Catherine, thanks for taking some time with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Can we start the conversation by you just defining an executor? Yeah, an executor is somebody who is appointed uh, under a will um, to deal with a deceased person's assets. Now, if there's no will and the deceased's assets still need to be administered, um, that person can still be an executor. They'll just have to go through a court process to get appointed. Uh, and in Alberta, we use a similar term. So you might hear in Alberta, executor or personal representative, and those terms are interchangeable. Okay. So we've seen recent examples of court holding uh, executors to account for their investment decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about the responsibilities that are attached to something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Alberta, we've got some legislation actually that sets out uh, what executors are required to do in the event that they act for an estate. Um, and a huge one is um, accounting to beneficiaries. Uh, and <clears throat> where we've seen the court cases, um, you know, where personal representatives or executors get into trouble is when they fail to um, either properly document what they're doing um, or they take some liberties with respect to how they're administering the deceased person's assets. Now, there are guidelines then. There's, there, are there Alberta guidelines yeah. around what this has to be? And, and then um, to what extent, I guess, if everybody's in agreement, are those guidelines in effect? 
Yeah, so um, in Alberta, the guideline, um, it's actually legislation called Estate Administration Act that came into force in 2014. It was uh, recently amended to modernize the rules, um, and they're really set out to help the executor um, figure out what to do and what their roles and responsibilities are. And so um, part one really lays it out. They've they've got to um, act honestly in good faith. They've got to act uh, in accordance with the deceased's intentions in the will uh, and um, with the care and diligence of um, somebody with ordinary prudence um, would in dealing with their assets. Um, and then obviously distributing the assets as soon as possible. So, so, Catherine, let me give you a bit of an example yeah. of what I've read in a, in a case. Um, there was, I think it was in Ontario. Um, mm. the, there was a case, I think, in December of last year. They, the courts were emphasizing the responsibility. There was a, a trust, an, ex, an estate trustee uh, or an executor that had an estate value of over $400,000, primarily assets being from uh, the, the deceased member's RSPs or, or retirement income fund. Now the the executor invested the money back in 2014 in energy stocks. We saw what happened with energy stocks. It fell, um, and and resulting in about a hundred and sixty-five thousand dollar loss to the estate. What responsibility in Alberta law does the executor have in the event of a situation where they're in, they're making the investment decisions, and you take a sub- substantial loss like that? Uh, Well, I mean, the first responsibility, uh, and I'll reference another piece of legislation for you here, um, that's laid out in our Trustee Act. Um, And I can just go over quickly, um, they've got to invest uh, funds in property um, if the investment um, sorry, I'm going to roll back. They must invest the funds uh, with the view of obtaining a reasonable return while avoiding undue risk. Um, so the way the law is set up in Alberta is, as a trustee, you're not liable to um, normal investment decisions and normal losses that would incur um, while you're administering the property. However, if you're taking undue risk, um, in terms of investing that property, you could be held liable if um, the courts determine that you're not a prudent investor. Uh, and so I, I, I'm aware of the case that you're talking about in Ontario, and I think in that case, um, from what I understand, the the trustee or the executor was acting in such a way where um, his risk portfolio was... medium and 90% high in terms of risk tolerance. And the court just took a look at that and said, those percentages are clearly not acceptable and not in line with what a prudent investor would do at given the circumstances. Okay, so let's go through the facts of, let's say it was in Alberta, okay, because we're yeah. going to use Alberta law, and this situation yeah. happened where the executor had, didn't, ha, didn't take prudent care over the, over the, uh, the portfolio. Um, right. Now there's losses. Who's liable? Right. Um, well, I think the first step would be um, if the beneficiaries would then have recourse um, to go to um, the executor and say, hey, um, you've created some losses. We don't think those are reasonable investments, and we want to take you to task. We want you to account for those, uh, and to the extent that the court finds uh, those losses are unreasonable, um, you've got to pay out of pocket and reimburse the estate um, to ensure that the beneficiaries um, have not lost out because of an irresponsible act of the trustee. So let's let's just make sure everybody's clear and heard that correctly. The executor, that individual, in this particular case, if it is found to be an imprudent investment, 
would be personally liable to pay back to the estate the losses that they created. Could be, yeah. Could be. Yeah, yeah. Which requires the beneficiaries to take it through court, right? Absolutely, yeah. I just wonder how many times people are not doing that. So, you know, there's three siblings, let's say. One of the siblings is an executor. They they blow up the portfolio. It goes down by 50% because they weren't prudent. And the other two don't do anything about it because they don't know that they could. And they don't want to take the family through court over mom and dad's money. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, all, all this is predicated on the fact that there is a complaint, right? There's a dispute over this for sure. Correct. Let's broaden it a little bit if we can, <clears throat> Catherine, just for a second, because we've talked about the um, the investment. There's some recent cases that we all found interesting. But mm-hmm. what's the difference in general terms? As an executor, right, ultimately you're taking a task on whether or not you're doing a good job or you're not doing a good job. And so there's a standard of care in there. Um, how broad is that standard of care? I know there's no definition, but but generally speaking, if you had to give the listeners some guidelines for those that are executors right now about kind of what to do to stay on track, not create that personal liability, what would you say? I mean, I think the the guideline would be what would a reasonable person be doing um, in or what would a reasonable person's expectations be with respect to getting that estate administered uh, and so we see a lot of complaints about um, the length of time it takes to get information out to beneficiaries that's a huge one so um, I mean the rule of thumb is you want to account as soon as possible you want to provide people with information as soon as possible you want to make sure that the liabilities are being taken care of. So if there are any outstanding debts in the estate, when you when when you get the job, when you become appointed, you want to make sure that um, those liabilities are being addressed and they're not being put on the back burner, uh, you know, because of um, just inaction. Um, those are, I mean, the main complaints we see with executors um, and attorneys. I think... Um, the other thing to note is the Estates Administration Act uh, ups the ante a little bit uh, for executors who may have specialized skills. So if you're an executor and you're also a lawyer or your accountant or um, you know some other individual who might be reasonably expected to have more knowledge than just your regular person um, who's taking care of mom or dad's estate, uh, then you are held to a higher standard of care in Alberta. So that's uh, that's something I think um, a lot of people don't quite know yet and aren't quite aware of. Uh, but if you are a professional, you you will be held to higher standard of care here. I think yeah. by listening to this, Dave, that people need to realize that when they're selecting somebody as an executor, that they be better be able to do this work. And if you're accepting being an executor, you better be prepared to do this. A work. lot of people don't know. No I'll exactly. be honest with you. I, you know, there's there's people who had no clue they're going to be an executor until they've been told by the will that hey, surprise, good point, you're the executor. So that give, Catherine, that gives you a chance to kind of either bow out or hire somebody else. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. But you have to make that decision up front. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, you can. Okay, Catherine, listen, we've run out of time. I appreciate it. I know we're covering a lot of material in a very very short period of time, but we appreciate your input as always. Okay, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. We've been joined by Catherine Zhang, an associate at Walsh LLP here in Calgary. 
Okay, um, upcoming seminar. Yeah, on Tuesday, May 16th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. How do you protect your estate? How do you make sure you have no health issues uh, from a financial perspective? How do you make sure you profit and protect in these types of markets? And how do you make sure that you have income for the rest of your life? We're going to discuss that again on Tuesday, May 16th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Stay tuned after the break to hear about what you should do if your millennial children are still leaning on you for support, and that's to help them become more independent. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Um, how about, you know, we talk about choosing your, uh, about, about childhood. We talk, you know, we think about, in fact, I love talking to my girls about childhood because they don't, they don't feel they're in control of it, right? Well, how about choosing your own adulthood? You ever thought about that? No. <laughs> I know you haven't, <laughs> but I know somebody who has. Okay. Uh, he's a licensed family therapist and what he's also the author. What does that mean? What does that well, mean? We're, we're, we're okay. going to find out. Okay. 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 Choose your own adulthood. I'm, I'm interested. I think I know where we're going to go with this conversation, <laughs> but we'll find out. Hal Runkle's joining us. He's a licensed family therapist and author of Choose Your Own Adulthood. Hal, thanks for taking some time with us today. Hey, thanks, man. I, I uh, I'm, uh, love to be on with you guys. All right, so let, let's talk about this choosing your old adulthood because I, I want to know what that term means to you, and then I'm going to laugh a lot at Faisal, okay. I think. <laughs> it, it actually came out of some letters that I started writing to my daughter mm-hmm. when she was about 16, and I realized, look, she is going to be outside of our presence very soon, and sooner than I can even realize, and I need to think about what do I want her to think about when she's not with us as she's launching out onto her own. And the main thing I want her to think about is decision-making. It's what makes your day, but it's also what makes your life. So we started writing these letters and we eventually turned it into a book and I gave it to her when we dropped her off at university a couple of years ago. And, and, And the book was then, um, uh, uh, was it different than the letters, or was it just all the letters put together, or what was the uh, yeah? What was put, the format? We put all the letters together, but, and also it was a very personalized thing. So there's yeah. a lot of like inside jokes about family members and stuff like that that other other people wouldn't get, and I didn't want my other family members to get either. So <laughs> we uh, changed it a bit and turned it into a book, and she ended up actually writing the foreword to the book, which I was very honored by. And, uh, it came out just a couple of weeks ago as as a book, and it's available bookstores everywhere now on Amazon. That's fantastic. So, so l- let's talk about this whole millennial issue then, okay? So we've got we this. Go. We've got the young population here. Um, they they seem to be very different <laughs> from. Uh, I suspect our vintage is close to the same. But um, tell me a little yeah. bit about let's let's explore this millennial issue. They're living at home. Whose fault is sure. that? Is there fault to be to be blamed or to be placed there? Yes. And you know what? It, every generation says, ah, oh, these kids today, they don't know how yeah. good they've got it, whatever. But there are some bits of data that uh, are interesting, like the 20-somethings living at home. And in the U.S., it's the highest percentage in modern history, 36%. Right. And it's we can talk about the economy, but the reality was that trend was upticking in the booming 90s and even in the booming 2000s about before 2008 
Right. So it's not totally just economics. It, there's a number of factors, but one of the biggest is parents. The parenting has changed over the last half century or so dramatically since World War II. And How has it changed? It's this. Well, the biggest thing is we started this idea that what we're doing is raising kids. And think about it. It's actually a ridiculous phrase. Well, that's a good point. You know what? I, I, I'm, in, I'm in Kansas right now doing some talks at a military base, and I'm surrounded by all these, these wheat fields. Well, these are wheat farmers. These are not kernel, you know, farmers. Yeah. They're wheat farmers. A tree farmer's not a sapling farmer. He's a tree farmer. So why do we say we're raising kids? I already have kids. Right. So what am I raising? So we, here's the problem. We can't raise kids, raise kids, and then complain that's all we end up with are kids. Hmm. It's a mentality that says we need to keep our kids safe for as long as possible. And it actually began right after World War II. I mean, think about it. World War II, we lose, in, this, in the U.S., we lose 500,000 young men yep. gotcha. in five years. So we've got to replace that generation, which we did with the biggest generation in history, the baby boomers. And we want to keep them safe because now we realize how fragile it is. And every decade has brought this new kind of parental anxiety. Like the 80s brought, 70s and 80s brought stranger danger, right? Yeah. And I, you remember the Tylenol crisis yeah. with the yeah. cyanide and the Tylenol, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, now it's what's in your medicine cabinet can kill your child. So it, but then you, of course, add 24-hour news cycle in the 90s and then social media, right? It's We know every possible thing that could happen to our kids. And so I don't know if this is happening where you guys are in Alberta, but I see it all over the U.S. with these stick figure families on the backs of the minivan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you guys yeah. seen those? Oh, yeah. crazy. Yeah. We, it's amazing. It's like broadcasting. This is what our family constellation kind of looks like. But you notice all the kids are always young. You never see, you know, a teenager that's taller than the mom stick yeah. figure on there, yeah. you know, looking at a cell phone. It's always young, and it's like, <laughs> I'm going to put them at these relative heights, and they're going to stay that way forever. I like that framework. You're not, I, I like that raise adults, not, uh, not ch- children. I, I, that's interesting. Let's talk about um, some tips then. What's the number one thing that parents can do to help their young children succeed? Choices with time limits and consequences. That is the real world. All day, every day, you and I face choices, small, tiny choices, with time limits and consequences. And that is the world we are preparing our kids for. And it can start earlier than you think. It's a start with a two-year-old. Don't say, you're going to wear this. Say, you can wear this or this. Well, I want that. No, that's not an option, but you can choose between these. And they might pick a, you know, three-year-old might pick a mismatched, you know, patterns and colors, but they have this look of pride. So increase that. You don't give them unlimited choices. You give them very finite choices, but teach them this is the way the world works. And you know what? I can't, pro- I can't prohibit you from making decisions, hoping that someday you're going to become a good decision maker. Yeah. So let's fast forward now. Some of these uh, millennials or individuals, even, even in our age category, Dave, we have we've find people that have not so great decision-making <laughs> criteria. Right. They, all right. So it's not only millennials. Let's not just uh, fixate on them. Um, nope. How do, you, how do you deal with or how do you parent an adult 
child and a, you know how do you how do you help them make better decisions because it's the first thing that most most people in my clientele base would say well these these kids keep on coming back well there it's two people's problems there it's one person saying yes you can come back and the other one saying i want to come back yep. but but how do you parent this child to considering what they've already been uh, ingrained or or been taught or sure. have acquired right and, the, and that's a great thing. You, you pointed it out beautifully. We co-participated in this decision to bring you back home or to not launch you, prepare you well. That, that was both of us working hard to create this situation that now neither one of us love. <laughs> yeah. So start with that humility. Say, you know what? We both got here. Now let's deal with the reality. The reality is you're living here. But it's one thing to live with your parents. It's another thing to live off your parents. Right. And <laughs> Multiple generations can live and have lived together great, but it only works if they're all contributing at some level to the existence, the coexistence of everybody. And so that's the biggest thing is, all right, well, let's create a runway for you to launch. And depending on whatever the situation is, that might be a longer runway for some than others. It might be, you know what, let's do six months and let's increase percentage-wise of what your rent is so that it's not just this big leap or let's make it a year what is this game plan we can both work together but here's what i'm going to do i'm not sure if you are going to do your part but i absolutely am going to do my part and here's what that part is yeah and i will do this and i will not do that so it doesn't matter if you're three-year-old or a 30-year-old let me just get it right choices with time limits and consequences absolutely that is all day so (laughs) that's what the book is really about I love it. Now, let's just say uh, the book is called Choose Your Own Adulthood. You can get it at Amazon or bookstores uh, around the country. Absolutely. Terrific. And We've been joined by... To our, our, sorry, oh. you can go to our website. It's called screamfree.com, like no yelling. <laughs> Sounds good, Hal. Thanks. Hal Runkle uh, has joined us today. He's a licensed family therapist and the author of Choose Your Own Adulthood. Um, we've got a seminar coming up here, my friend. What was the, what was the lines that you wrote down there? Choices with time limits and consequences. Doesn't that sound like when you're transitioning to retirement or living in retirement, those choices that you make early in regards to your portfolio, how you're going to draw income will impact your retirement in the future? Let's discuss that on Tuesday, May 16th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. We're going to show you how you can bulletproof your retirement, how you can securitize your income and profit and protect in these types of markets. Again, on Tuesday, May 16th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethemoneyradio.com. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770. And more than money and um, traveling. I love it. Traveling is a, an experience. translating money into experience. Do you know what the best thing about traveling is? Um, no, you tell me. When I leave you and the office, more you, and then I have to, the bad part, I have to come back to you, but it's okay. You know, our long-term okay, listeners know that you're mean. They just no, know that. No, they just know I report the news. I don't create it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we'll go with that. We've got Tamara Elliott joining us today, travel writer and founder of the website globeguide.ca. Tamara, thanks for taking some time with us. Good morning. You can see you want to avoid as much of the conversation with Faisal as possible because he's mean. That's I what, won't oh. go there. <laughs> he clearly needs a vacation. So, um, 
yeah, let's talk a little bit about hotels. Um, so you're going on a trip, often, you know, you end up at a hotel or it could be, you know, an Airbnb or something like that. But hotel reviews play a pretty big role in people's decision-making process. So really, what should you be looking for? How do you know that, you know, the hotel operator just hasn't written them? Yeah, absolutely. And that can be a big problem um, is these unverified reviews. So I think a lot of travelers place a lot of stock in reviews, whether it's, you know, using Yelp to look at a restaurant that they might want to go dine at, they rate their Uber driver, or they're going to a website to check out the reviews on a resort that they're thinking about staying at. So the actual website that you go to for the reviews is really important because, as you just mentioned, there could be some unverified ones. Unfortunately, um, you know, TripAdvisor is a pretty popular site, but basically the way it works is anybody can leave a review, right. whether or not they've actually stayed at the property. And that has led to cases of fake reviews from people like, you know, the rival owner of a, another property, for example. So that's why uh, websites like Hotels.com are really good to use because the people who can leave reviews on that website um, have to book through their portal and then they can only leave a review once they've completed a stay there. Hmm. So you know it's completely verified. So that's a really great place to start. Um, other things to look for when you're um, going through all of those hotel reviews, because we know there's a lot, yep. is um, the date that it was left. Because in the yeah. hotel world, a lot can change in a really short period of time. Things like staff turnover, renovations of the properties, for example. So try to look for reviews that have been written in you know, just the last few months, because a lot can change depending on the date. Uh, yeah. Another good sign... Oh, sorry. Go sorry, ahead. Tamara, do you think that also who, not who, but where they're from, like city-wise and so forth? Because I've gone to, let's say, Mexico, or I look at a resort there and so forth. I look at the reviews and there's, well, this place didn't have, you know, some, you know, some sort of amenity that, that we're all accustomed to in parts of the United States, for example. Um, but you're going to a foreign country. There should have some sort of uh, of criteria there. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yes, absolutely. So it's really important to kind of take every review with a grain of salt. You know, because as you mentioned, some people can be a little picky or they kind of use the review area as a place to gripe about something that maybe is not that big of a deal. Dave you know, writes maybe, reviews about pillows, just so you know. Yeah, you <laughs> know, important. complaining the pillows. breakfast wasn't very good because it didn't, you know, hit their gluten-free, protein-heavy diet, you know, and it's not just <laughs> realistic for everybody. Well, pillows um, are important. You can't. I don't like down pillows. It's important. But, My head sweats. But you review about it all I the time. foam pillows. <laughs> Bring your own. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Tamara. Keep on going. <laughs> no, no. Um, some other great things to look for in reviews is um, if the manager responds. Right. So sometimes you'll actually see, um, you know, a manager or the or the owner of the actual property respond to a review, and that's a really good sign because it shows that the staff is really concerned about those reviews and ensuring that guest stays are really good. So if some issue were to come up during your stay, uh, there's probably a good chance that staff there would work to resolve it. Right. Yeah, acknowledge it and then resolve it. Yeah, for sure. What about mm. multiple reviewers? So let's say, so I went, I, I actually booked a home through VRBO. Was not happy with the home after because they didn't give me my my deposit my deposit back. Okay, um, so I put one review in saying I wasn't happy with it. Tried to put another one saying it's now been three months and I haven't heard back from them, and the site prevented me from doing so. So I could not leave multiple quote-unquote negative reviews about this property because it's, it's an individual property owner. I think that people should know that it's taken me over three months. Now it's been over two years, and I still haven't got my money back, by the way. <laughs> it's not coming. You it's know not coming. Right? Yeah, I've, I've, I've now dealt Have with that. Have you given up for that? Yeah, I've, I've got counseling for that one. Um, 
<laughs> so, so how, how? What about those types of issues where you're just getting one piece of the story? You're not getting the full story of th- that type of service. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's these things that come up all the time. Um, uh, and I think some people can be scared even to leave reviews potentially uh, because you know it's very personal. So, some, especially in something like an Airbnb, where when you leave a review. The person on the other end knows exactly who you are that left that review. So I think that can hold back a few people. I would say that um, in a situation like that, the best way to go about it is to actually contact the company that you booked through. So like the actual portal, like an Airbnb or a VRBO, and see if they can remedy it. Because um, like you said, there's not always a way to keep leaving the same review. But one trick you could do is use a different email address. Oh. That might work. <laughs> Ah, so let's go through that. What's what are some of the tips that you can give us so that we can properly put a review for a hotel or a resort and, and go yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely good karma to leave one after you um, after your visit because you probably read everyone else's beforehand. So the key is to be as specific as possible. So first of all, tell people why you were there. Was it a business trip? Was it a family vacation? Was it a bachelorette party? Because that will kind of give the other readers an idea of what type of traveler you are mm-hmm. and if the kind of trip that you were having is similar to what they're looking for. So yeah, then, the context is important. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because, yeah, a family with three young kids is looking for something a lot different than your business traveler. Sure. So uh, then share what kind of things did you do? So were there amenities at the hotel, like a shuttle service that you took advantage of? Uh, did you speak with the concierge? Was the breakfast good? Was the Wi-Fi slow? Um, you know, just talking about your general experience there is really helpful. Uh, we kind of touched on if you had any issues earlier. So if you did have any, what were they? <clears throat> and um, how, they, how were they resolved or were they resolved? So that's really key. And then finally, one that I think is the most important is did the property you stayed at actually look how it does on the online website photos? Ah, yeah, the like photos. are the photos the same? Because, you know, we all know that a little Photoshop can go a long way. Dave, <laughs> do, you, do you put reviews on after you've gone to a hotel? No. If it was a negative experience, would you put a review? No. You just keep it to yourself. Well, yeah. you tell me because I don't want to hear about it, but other than that, you... Yeah, no. It's funny because when, I, when someone was to ask me to rate uh, my experience at a hotel, if it was a positive one, I generally ignore it. But if it was really bad and I, I want to vent... And because I don't have to put my name on it or whatever, no one can can track me on it. Mm-hmm. I, I'll put a negative review on there. You know my online presence, so it has nothing to do with that. Yeah, you have, own, it's you, zero. Yeah, you have a hard time turning on your computer. <laughs> it's Good zero. Point. Good point. So, so what about those kind of situations, Tamara? When it comes to people like myself, who, you know, when it's good, it's good. I don't. I won't talk about it. But when it's bad, I'll mention it, and so everybody knows that it was a bad experience. Well, and I think that's really what a lot of people use reviews for is sort of that outlet. If something went wrong at the property and they didn't feel it was resolved properly, that's how they're going to, you know, kind of vent their anger. So it kind of goes back to, you know, looking at every review with a grain of salt. Um, you know, you really have to try to, to weed through them all and look at the key points. Um, so maybe someone did have a bad experience, but it seems like their, their issue was a little trivial and not something that might apply to you, you can kind of move past that. So I think what people should be looking for are the more important things, like what's the so-called winning formula. So this is something that Hotels.com also developed, um, and they analyzed 148 million comments from 5 million of their verified reviews. 
to determine um, what they call the winning formula. And it actually looks at things like uh, how friendly the staff are, price of the room, are there inclusions such as Wi-Fi, how comfortable are the beds, is breakfast included, the cleanliness of the hotel. That's really the stuff that's important um, to any hotel stay. The star ratings are sort of not a factor because star ratings actually are based on the amenities that a hotel offers. So, right. for example, it doesn't have a golf course, pool, luxury spa. So not everyone needs that for every stay. That's not a true reflection of how great your stay is going to be. It's more important like things like service um, and location, for example. So that's what you should really be looking for in reviews are those key points and how that's going to affect your stay. Tamara, thanks for joining us today and giving us those wonderful insights. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I've been joined by Tamara Elliott. She's a travel writer and the founder of the website, globeguide.ca. That's globeguide.ca if you want any further information. Uh, we've got an upcoming seminar here, my friend, uh, that will hopefully help people have the confidence to go and take those trips and stay in those wonderful hotels that they want to stay in. So one thing that we get is we get reviews on how people's retirement are because we've retired about 200 times yep. between, from our clients. So we live through them and, and what their experiences are and what their reviews are and what their challenges are. And we get to talk about all those challenges. Number one issue that people are scared of is running out of money. And also, how do you profit and protect in these types of volatile markets? We're going to discuss that on Tuesday, May 16, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or you can register online at morethemoneyradio.com. Before we sign off, don't forget about our archive at morethanmoneyradio.com. We've got uh, any of the shows uh, today or past uh, are all there for you to review. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on News Talk 770. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.